Listening Dog Media. This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th. And it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose. And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. DJ! Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins, and this is How to DJ. How to DJ. I could just use six proper inputs, and if I just bypass the recording process and go straight to my dad's tape deck... Oh, right, quickly, whip something up. You know, I, I always say, like, house music is the international language, you know, of, of the, the world. world. The thing about music where it can just give you goosebumps, that, that's one of my favourite things to play. A podcast exploring life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs, where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45. And for this episode, a DJ. Equipment was pretty basic. Do you know what I mean? And so to be actually be able to mix two records on those was quite an achievement, especially chewing your face off. The inimitable Dub Pistols frontman. But it was never meant to be a band, Dub Pistols. It was just about me making dance floor cannon fodder. And festival founder, Barry Ashworth. Welcome to How to DJ. You're going to teach me, right? <laughs> 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 That's a great start. Because <laughs> after 36 years, I'm still learning, Chris. <laughs> Barry, what was your first ever job in music? My first ever job in music? Oh, wow. I guess it was as a club promoter. It was a club promoter. I started after, after going off to Ibiza accidentally in 87. I'd got myself in some trouble on Mallorca. I got to get the ferry off the island quickly. What happened? I ended up, I went with a load of lads, load of mates. Things were very different then, 1987. You know, there was definitely more tribalism about everything. We were in an Irish bar and got into a fight and got the three bells beat out of us and had to leave town pretty quickly. So we, you know, just managed to get over to Ibiza. And I guess, like I said, and, and, and the, the contrast of the change of life instantly, because when, you know, I grew up in a... In a, um, on a council estate in South South London, uh, we're just outside of South London, really. I mean, it's car short, it's more Surrey, but you know, when you when you're kind of trying to be a mockney, you sort of try. <laughs> well, it's London. You, you 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 know you are very tribal when you and you you know you you hung out in gangs and back in those days, you know, football violence was a huge problem. So we just got into a fight, but then landed luckily in Ibiza in 1987 took my first pill, ecstasy, and it completely changed my life and the direction of my life. And and I think not just myself, I think, you know, a whole generation and generations since. Tell me about that experience some more, though. 
I remember going, you know, first of all, was hanging out at like, uh, and it sounds all cliche now and sounds like very sort of like, you know, this is what I'd be if it was. But at the time, you know, suddenly sitting outside the Cafe Del Mar with the sunset going down, going to Amnesia, a nightclub like Amnesia, um, which was still open air at that stage, had a big massive outside, there was goats in it. it. It just changed your life, you know. I think I would be about 21 and just feeling loved up. And I, again, I know it sounds so cliche, and you know, but it, it, it really did. Suddenly you thought you could change the world. You were just loved up. You were just full of love and you couldn't stop, you know, dancing. Do you know what I mean? You were still dancing three days later. <laughs> so it, it, it was that. And there was, it, was, it was strange because there was a, so a, a core of people from my local area that were there. And I guess like Alfredo was the DJ, main DJ there then. Paul Oakenfold, Trevor Fung, they were out there. And a lot of other people from my local area. And we came back and then, you know, a group of us got together and started running clubs. We came back and it was before the Summer of Love. The Summer of Love was really 1988. After we come back from in 87, started hanging out at places like the Shum, you know, Danny Ramplin's Shum, which was absolutely incredible. My friends used to make, used to take a milk crate they'd decorate to dance on his own podium and things like that. You know, it really was like, you know, sweaty little rave bandanas on your head. It was, it was, it was life changing. But the music then really wasn't like, it wasn't, it was more Balearic. If you, you know, that was kind of the thing. It was more, you could, it would be any, anything from In Excess to, you know, Need You Tonight to all, all going all over the place with or without you, you too. You know, things that you wouldn't put in a club today necessarily together. Do you know what I mean? It was kind of, that was the Balearic vibe. Do you know what I mean? So that was kind of the thing that I was into. That was Oakenfold who always stuck in with or without you, didn't he? Yeah, I think a lot of people start, every, I mean, it blew up, the, the, the scene blew up really quickly. From coming back in 87 and by 88, the whole country was engulfed in it. You know, you could literally go, there was like, you know, I used to go to Shum, Land of Oz, Spectrum, you know, in London. And then there'd be like, you know, like, then there'd be, you know, later on, come Creamfields, there'd be the bomb in Nottingham, the arena in, I think it was, I don't know if it was Middlesbrough or Sheffield. I think it was Middlesbrough, actually. Just clubs, groups, you know, sprung up all over the country. You could literally, and I did used to literally go out seven nights a week. Do you know what I mean? And you, yet somehow you could go to work. What were you doing for work? I started off as a plasterer. I come from about a full fifth generation of plasterers. And I met a girl and her father was a film director. So I started working in a film studio as a runner. And there was a guy there called John Griffin who used to run it. He was completely off, mad as a box of frogs. And he started to let me throw parties there as well. She was, you know, which was brilliant. So, I mean, that came a bit later on when I started throwing parties in film studios. It started a bit smaller than that. And then Clive Langer used to have his studio, Westside Studios was right next door. I used to go and hang out in the studios there with him. We used to play five-side football all the time. So I'd go in there while he had all the, you know, hothouse flowers and God knows who were in there. It was, you know, that was a real, that was where I first actually got to record my first song. Because <laughs> I was friends with them, I got to use the studio. Wait, so where was your first party? The first parties we that I did was in a club called Ziggy's in Streatham. Nosha Powell, who you 
I don't know if you would or wouldn't know who used to run when a craze would be on the door. It, 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 it was, you know, it, it was just a small little club in London. The lads that I was with, Spencer, Steve and Blaine, we opened up a couple of record shops. We started throwing various different parties. We ended up running a club called Naked Lunch, which became really big, started off at Studio Valbon, took it to the Café de Paris, ended up at the SW1 Club in uh, Victoria that later, I think, I can't remember what it became, Pasha, I think. So we were kind of running most, a lot of big parties in London, up to about 1,000, 1,500, because for me, anything bigger than that was kind of like, I really was all about trying to keep it underground. How did you know what you were doing? I don't think you did. If I'm completely honest, you know, I mean, it was like, you know, it's like it was you just, you just did it. You just put on parties. You took chances. You've got to remember, I remember when most DJs then were doing it for free. The equipment was absolutely abysmal. Say like really at the start, you know, it wasn't costing a lot of money. You'd do all the decor yourself. You'd go around and you'd hand out flyers and you and you had a crowd because you naturally had a group of friends who you'd known from school and and the word had spread pretty quickly by then, but there was no social media or anything like that. I don't even know if we had mobile phones. So it was pretty, you know, to be able to start pulling in crowds and, and, and which grew massively quickly. It was all kind of word of mouth. Big crowds as well. Yeah. I mean, in the end we were... You know, for 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 the film studios, I think we'd go up to two to three thousand people. I mean, those those big monster raves that came later, you know, with the M twenty five raves, that they to me were like the, the they were pirates because because you know in my mind and stupidly because because it held you back for quite a while. It was, I really was passionate about keeping the scene underground. Do you know what I mean? And trying to keep it like you know cool. I guess I guess people that I looked up to would be like. Boys Home, Andy Weatherall, Terry Farley, you know, Simon Eccles, they were kind of like my model of what we wanted, what how I wanted Naked Lunch and the and the parties that I was putting on. What about the first time you ever DJed then? First time I ever DJed, because I, I was a club promoter first. It took me a while to, to build up to be a DJ. I was playing more funk, I think. I think it was the Gardening Club in Covent Garden. I'd gone down for a, for a night called Strum. I think it was called Strum Plunk Boom Funk. The sandals and people like that were playing there. And I think that was the first time. I remember the first time I got to ask, I got asked to DJ. And I got, I got so nervous, I literally, I, you know, took my records down to the car, then just took them back upstairs and went just sat indoors. Just like, <laughs> I can't face it. Just, you know, I was petrified, absolutely petrified. I used to drink my way through those things because of the nerves, do you know what I mean? Which didn't actually really help. But back in those days, as I mentioned earlier on, you know, a lot of this, you were, you were off your head. You were off your head. God knows, I don't know, like, to try and attempt it now, I don't know. But, you you, you know, not just me, I don't, I, not, I don't think many DJs back in those days were not chemically unbalanced. <laughs> there was no way. And that and that's what made the whole thing when I compare DJing to then compared to now, you know, drinking and substance abuse and you know, playing three, four times a night on, you know, turntables, but they weren't even really turntables. It'd be like you, you know, euphonic turntables, which would have more like elastic bands on them, sound lab decks. And the phonic mixer, you know, the equipment was pretty basic. 
Do you know what I mean? And so to be actually be able to mix two records on those was quite an achievement, <laughs> especially chewing your face off. <laughs> Did you teach yourself? <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah. There wasn't, there wasn't such a thing as, like now there's lots of places and lots of academies and lots of DJ schools and loads of places that you can go and learn. Plus, obviously, you've got your YouTube and you've got everything else where you can learn now. And there was, no, there was none of that then. You know, it was you know you were lucky enough to be able to afford a pair of decks, let alone lessons to actually like you know learn what to do. You, and the first, obviously, the, the first thing is you don't even realise about BPM counting. Do you know what I mean? You're trying to put two records together that will never go together in a million years. It takes you a while to start getting to that point to start you know realising. And then in the in the end, you'd have all your tunes put out in into an order where. They were in the BPM order so that as you're going through it, different parts of your box would be filled with different tempo tunes. When did you first start getting booked? Do you know what? I really don't know. I guess it would be sometime in the 90s. Because like I said, my first thing was, was first and foremost, I was a promoter. And that meant that I could actually put myself on. I used to play, again, because, because I was a club promoter, therefore I had a profile Therefore, I could get bookings. Do you know what I mean? So that it was, or I could play at my own club. So, which I didn't tend to do because I didn't. You know, it was. It took a long time to actually grow any confidence or have any belief in yourself as a DJ. Do you know what I mean? And there was a lot of good DJs around at that time. You don't strike me as someone who lacks confidence. Yeah, but that's the. I think that's the whole bravado, and I think a lot of artists just start, you know. Deal, you know, suffer from what you see and what your perception is, is totally different. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you know, I don't think I've ever, don't get me wrong, I won't shirk a challenge, but that doesn't mean to say that I'm not nervous as hell. And that's why I think, uh, you know, a lot, that's where a lot of the drinking and the substance abuse came into it for many, many, many years, because it was to mask that, um, that fear. How serious did that get in the 90s? Bad, you know, bad. I was more into pills than I was, you know, say like cocaine or whatever. I really hated cocaine in clubs. I mean, I used to, you know, for me, a club full of people all happy and loved up on pills was the perfect environment. Once cocaine started coming into it, and then you could just tell the attitude and the vibe changed completely. But then, you know, the whole industry, you know, was, was littered with it. So it was like, you know, you suddenly fall into that. And you don't realise, and it sort of becomes a very slippery slope and very fast, you know. And, and I, and there was a, you know, for years I was like it, you know. And and I, you know, my company's called What the Could Possibly Go Wrong Limited, and it's because pretty much you throw though, you know, you throw late nights, you throw alcohol, substance abuse, and everything else, and it's you know the wheels are going to come off really fast. The whole thing is going to go from naught to one hundred quickly and then back down again how much did it spiral when i did the deal with geffen which again when none of them going off chronological order when i did the deal with, deal with geffen i got what about 1.5 million within a year i was i thought 120 grand left and i was 16,000 overdrawn jesus i used to drink two bottles of vodka before i perform and God knows how much Charlie every day. I used to go to the studio whenever I used to sleep. I used to tape it up. I used to sleep underneath the mixing desk. You know, it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was grim. And these situations when you, you know, 
everywhere you go, everyone is was racking up. Do you know what I mean? Or throwing pills at you, you know? So it was like, I would always be the last person to leave the club. I'd always go to the after party, wherever that was. And the problem, the, the problem with that perception is that once you're known for being a canine, it's very, it's very hard to lose that reputation. How did you get out of it all? There just came a day, I mean, look, I'm, I'm, I'm still not like, don't get me wrong, I still like a drink. It, I just had it, I just, it just all fell apart. Everything fell apart. It was just like, and I, and I just got bored, you know, just got literally bored of ourselves and myself. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I went through, we're doing a documentary at the moment called What Could Possibly Go Wrong? The History of the Dub Pistols. And it's it's, a, it's just a combination of things that, and, and they're, all these things are self-inflicted. Do you know what I mean? Everything I'd done through the drinking and then the chaotic performances and the, you know, and there was things that I'd done in, 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 in countries where, you know, I've been thrown out of countries. I've been banned from countries for things I've said on television or done on stage. Do you know, you know, because of the state that I've been in, thinking I was being funny, but actually totally misread the situation. And like I said, I think the level of professionalism now is much, much so different to where it is now. There were good times along the way, yeah. Yeah, oh, mate, every, I, listen, I, you know, I don't regret a thing. Maybe, maybe spending as much money as I did. Do you know what I mean? You know, maybe if I'd have been a bit more professional, my career might have gone in a different trajectory. You know, as you know, I call myself successfully unsuccessful. And most of the goals were own goals. Been given every opportunity that you can possibly imagine. But, you know, what? Oh my God, it's been a riot. What were the best of those times? Chris, to be honest with you, it's all been great fun. Apart from when it's gone wrong. Do you know what I mean? Which is a lot. <laughs> well, I'd, be the lot. I'd say 50 50. <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> That's a lot. But, you know, now, you know, those days, the, the, the hedonistic days back in, uh, in Ibiza, the early days of running the clubs, the going to the basics, going all the different people, just hanging out, you know, and the ridiculous situations you'd put yourself into, do you know, you know, Derek Delarge, you know, John Carter super gluing a dildo to his head. Do you know things things that will live with you forever? <laughs> you know, hanging out with Howard Marks, at, you know, and... Uh, uh, manumission motel. And what just, was that like? Oh, debaucherous. <laughs> it was hedonistic. It was. Go on, just a know, little bit of insight, please. It was carnage. It was absolutely carnage. I mean, you know, it was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And it's totally legit. Do you know what I mean? You know, manumission was, you know, they were, you know, live sex shows. They were just like, yeah, it was a free for all. It, you know, you can. You, you can check in, but you can never leave. I used to, when I used to go and play in Ibiza, I never made a flight home. <laughs> I would be there for, you know, and it didn't matter how many times it, it, I got booked a new flight. I still didn't make it, you know. So it was, it was, and that wasn't just Ibiza, actually. I remember, I remember <clears throat> I left um, Thailand once to go on tour in Australia, and it was around Christmas time. And I remember playing, I don't know if it was Christmas Eve or somewhere, and I played in, it's the first night of the tour, by the way, I played in the club, and I, I woke up, and I was underneath the turntables, and a beer mat stuck to my face, and the club was locked. So I was locked in the club, 
I couldn't get hold of anybody. Do you know what I mean? Nobody was answering their phone. I was supposed to get an aeroplane. I, I, I literally, it cost me a fortune that tour because I literally just missed everything and missed every show. So, and then I got back to Thailand after two weeks, thousands of pounds out of pocket, took a bucket full of mushrooms, tripped over a giant frog and broke my leg. <laughs> <laughs> of course, at this time, when you were touring, you're lugging your records around with you as well. That 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 brought a whole issue. Oh God! I mean, one of the things that I miss most about DJing would be going around record shops, doing record shops, knowing when the imports were coming in. You know, getting the latest, hottest, newest tunes. The thing I miss least about vinyl is lugging them about because back in the day before, later on the technology of a trolley bag came along do you know what i mean or <laughs> smaller bags but first of all they would just be those giant metal flight cases and i would generally have three of them do you know what i mean so it was hellish do you know i think i think i keep thinking my knees are gone because of my stage performances with a band but i think a lot of it was down to carrying those records around but and then also British Airways went through a period as well, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm going to, you know, back in the day where they were notorious if you were playing abroad, that that there was quite often where you'll turn up somewhere like Singapore or whatever, and your records hadn't arrived, so you had no records, and it wasn't like like these days where you just go online and start, you know, downloading stuff or whatever. You know, you was literally dumb. You'd go and find someone else, a local DJ play his records that you'd never heard before and try and see if you can put something together on the fly. It didn't work, by the way, but uh, you can give it a go. You tried everything, haven't you? <laughs> DJ. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When did the band start? My first band was a band called Deja Vu, which I really hate the name, but that was the name, that was the name of our record shop. And what was it again? Deja Vu. There you go. And I was signed to Charlie Chester's label, Cowboy Records. So I guess it was, it was around that time that the Happy Mondays, Stone Roses, Suit Dragons, that whole Manchester thing had come along. And we wanted to, to do a London version of it. Do you know what I mean? We wanted like well, we wanted to, so there was a there was a group that Sean McCluskey used to run Love Love Ranch. He had a band called If. Simon Eccles from Boys Home had a band called Airstream. That was it, Airstream. He had a band called Airstream. There was us and there was another which was Deja Vu, and there was another band called Natural Life. And we thought, oh, and them flowered up, but they're the only ones who were any good, actually. Well, they were, I wouldn't say they were good, they were nutters, but they made that one brilliant track um, Weekender. Weekender with Clive Langer yeah. that was just, you know, a game changer. But I would say that they were the one authentic challenge to anything as mad as Manchester. Do you know what I mean? So I think we had we 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 made one we made one album with Cowboy. Charlie left just as it was coming out because he was, was signed to Pulsate, Frank Sampson. They had like Urban Cookie Crew and a 
load of other cheese that I didn't particularly like, but were very successful at putting that kind of music away. Charlie's Cowboy label was doing really well at the time. They had hit after hit. And we had one hit record, which was a cover version of the Wooden Tops, Why, 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 which was obviously like, you know, take, which again was a massive Balearic tune back in the sort of 87, 88 era. So I did a v version of that with, with Rolo from the Wooden Tops. We recorded it together. That, that song went on the word. I remember Charlie Chester's Mrs. Karen Dunn, who was the biggest DJ agent at the time, getting thrown out for telling Julian Clary to get his whatever out. It was just, yeah, it was just, a, again, mad times. What made you think you could start a band? Happy Mondays. Yeah, but, I mean, you've got to be able to either play something or sing, right? <sighs> Technically. <laughs> Technically. So, so what, you just, <clears throat> the idea of being in a band came first. Any kind of ability came second. Yeah, I think it was going, I think again, because if you go back way before, then I was whizzing to my punk and that was kind of the ethos then. Do you know what I mean? It was like, but we, you know, we'll worry about the technicalities later. <laughs> Story of your life. <laughs> we just say we're going to do it and we'll do it. And I, you know, from, from, again, from my club promoting days, it meant that I never had to start playing in clubs or pubs rather, I, our third gig was at the Astoria. Do you know what I mean? And Channel 4 were there filming it. You know, so again, I and, and, and my thing was, like you asked me the question, why did I start? It was a happy Mondays. And there's, you know, and Bez and Sean, as you know, and Rowetta and that, they're my friends. But my, my whole ethos then again, like I said, was not necessarily based on ability. It was based on being the highest person in the building so that I could project that to everybody else and they'll be on the same buzz as me. Do you mean that was literally like that was my mindset at that time, you know? And I remember I think we got to play the Royal Albert Hall. I think I passed out after two songs and couldn't remember being there. <laughs> when did Deja Vu turn into Dub Pistols? Deja Vu run its course. We had the album come out, Gangsters, Tarts, and Wannabes. Charlie had left, so Cowboy Records was no more. I was still signed to Cowboy through Pulse Eight, so. I was technically still under a contract. I met up, the big beat scene had just started to blow up then. All the sound was about, Skimp was around. So I really got it started getting into that sound, the breakbeat sound. It was so, I'd got bored of the generic house music at that stage. And this, and, and you know, the, 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 the Manchester scene had moved on. So for me, you know, hearing the first Chemical Brothers track, Mercury Mouth or Dust, I can't remember, Songs of the Siren or whatever it was, just blew my mind. And and, and then suddenly, you know, I, I just got into the big beat scene and I started, met up with John Carter and we started, we started Monkey Mafia. We did the first Monkey Mafia track, Blow the Whole Joint Up. And then John, John signed to Heavenly. I couldn't sign because I was still signed to Pulse 8. And so I just started doing, my, you know, I started doing my own thing. And I did my first ever Dub Pistols track was There's Gonna Be a Riot. It was, it was never meant to be a band, Dub Pistols. It was just about me making dance floor cannon fodder. Do you know what I mean? Just for me to play as a DJ. I remember making the first There's Gonna Be a Riot. I went into Sabre Sonic, Andy Wevel studio. I was a bit messed up at the time because, again, the gear in my head wasn't in the best place. I guess because of what happened with Gangsters, Tarts and Wannabes not working, the thing not working out with John, with because he carried on. And I was trying for ages to make this, make a tune. 
and it just wasn't happening. The, the records just weren't coming. Do you know what I mean? It just, just it didn't. And then I met. We went into Saber Sonic, and I was with Keith Tenniswood, who was who used to work closely with uh, as Two Lone Swordsman with um, Andy, and we stayed up for about twenty four hours, did a load of pills, and with the first track, there's going to be a riot. Was made, and I sent it into Concrete Records because they'd give me five hundred pound to make a demo. I didn't hear anything back for quite you know a couple of weeks. So I thought oh, I'm going to give Vanessa a call. So I called her up and uh, she said, uh, "I said, well, what do you think?" She went, it's "Terrible." <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, possibly the worst record I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> I'm like, like, like I said, she. Mentally, I wasn't in a fantastic state at that time. So I was going around, and she said, "You better come in and see me, and you know, we we'll have a chat." I remember I was going around the plane, playing to people, going. All right, might not be the best record. It's not the worst record you've ever heard in the world, is it? Surely, right? And like I said, I was really like, like not in a good place. And then so I went in and I played. She said, "Well, play the track." And I played the track. And she played the track, and she was basically listening to the digi dump off the sampler, which sounds to anyone who who knows anything about sampling back in those days, it would be like listening to an old fax machine or do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like boop 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 I mean Apex we made a career out of it, but <laughs> but I fast forward very successful <laughs> So I played the tune, she loved it. I think Steve and Mac suddenly it was Everybody was all over it. It was tuning a week. Everything was going off. It just it just took off. Suddenly, that was it. We were away. What year was that? 1997, 697. Right. When did the Geffen deal come about then? Okay, so what happened with the Geffen deal? And that came about a bit later. First of all, so after there's going to be a riot, you carried on making make a couple of tunes. And then we had one record called Cyclone that the... It was one, only one and only tune that we've ever had playlisted, I guess, on Radio 1. I think it made the C-list. So that was our sort of almost hit. And they asked us to make an album. And we never, we never, and it was never really meant to be an album. It was just a load of cobbled together tracks that we'd made. And we just finished it and put it out. You know, it was never really an album in the way that I would say that we create an album now. It was more of a load of singles for the dance floor with a couple of extra singles thrown on at the end just to make up the numbers. <laughs> Such a shambles. <laughs> but then, but the thing was, the mad thing about this is, right, so, but no, that was the big beat sound then. So I'm, 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 I'm being... can't you say it was the big beat sound <laughs> no, with, the, well, with a couple of singles <laughs> chunks on the end? Well, no, because because what I mean is, like, there wasn't no radio sing single singles as such. It wasn't song-based. It was it was a collection of underground dance music. Do you know what I mean in terms right. of... And we... we but it's called Point Blank. I mean, I ended up calling it Pointless Wank. I don't know if you can say that in this podcast or whatever, and you can edit it out later. <laughs> <Send> it <there. laughs> but um, this was 1998, wasn't it? This was 1998, and like I said, we'd suddenly with with after Cyclone, suddenly we really did get you know some really good traction. We we're getting great play at radio. We were getting fantastic reviews all over NME, Melody Maker. Everywhere, you know, all the things that you had to do in that period, everything was going for us. By the time the album came out, 
a bit like the dubstep scene, the, the big beat scene of falling off the cliff. Do you know what I mean? As quick as it had come, you know, propeller heads had become massive. Chemical Brothers had become massive. Fat Boy Slim had become massive. You know, the uh, Skint Records, Wall of Sound Records. It was, it was huge. And then all of a sudden, it fell off the cliff. And I remember we'd gone from being enemy darlings. I think when they reviewed my album, they called it the smell of Norman's sweaty jockstrap. <laughs> One for your headstone. Do you know what I mean? So, so that didn't happen. But there was a guy. In, there was a guy in America called Gary Richards, who absolutely loved the album, and and it, so he had, he asked us to go and sign for A and M in America, and he he absolutely loved the sound of the track album. And I'm you know, and our record label just turned around to us, just said, "Look, it's not going to happen for you here." we suggest you go to America. Do you know what I mean? So that's kind of what we did, or what I did. And then Point Blank took off there because it, for some reason, it really resonated with the Americans. You know, it, it, it just seemed to, Big Beat really blew up. You know, Norman, Fatboy Slim, Propellerheads, DJ Punk Rock. Um, we were all going around, we are on the Vans Walk Tour and doing all sorts of kind of crazy thing. And we was getting, you know, Limp Biscuit and Corn were into us. It was kind of really weird, do you know what I mean? Because we had the breakbeat with guitar. It it kind of really connected. So Point Blank became really successful. And then typical, what could possibly go wrong, AMM Records went bust. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So that was it. Just as we were starting to take off. Of all the labels. <laughs> right? AMM Records went bust. And it was like, oh, God, not again. And um, again, I was so off, I came back to the UK. I was broke. I had a full Capri that the door cut. I'd, I'd, I'd driven into something and the, and the door got wedged shut. So I used to have to climb in and out the window. <laughs> I had like bleach blonde hair and I was climbing, you know, with a, with a Mohawk, climbing in and out the wall window of this full Capri. And Richard, Richard Bishop, Gary Richards had introduced me to Richard Bishop who was managing him loads, he was quite a really successful manager over there. He said that I should get Richard Bishop to manage me. He was managing Crystal Method, he was managing, God knows, Henry Rollins, various different other really hugely successful acts. Richard Bishop then um, went in for a meeting with Jimmy Irving, Irving, to talk about Crystal Method. And Jimmy Ivan had heard this track that we had made with Planet Asia, and he he said he started talking, going, "You've got to listen to this track. You've got to listen to this track. It's like it's the best thing I've heard in fifteen years." And then Richard he, play, he played the track to Richard. And he went, "It's the Dub Pistols." He said, "I managed them," and then it was literally the next day flew out and did the million and a half dollar deal. Whoa! <laughs> well, how life changing was that? It wasn't really because you pissed it all up against the wall. <laughs> <laughs> it was another great year. <laughs> you carried on though. <laughs> yeah, no, listen, like, no, it wasn't quite as simple as that. It wasn't the fact that I just pissed it out the wall. There was that element to it, but obviously there's there's a darker element to it as well. We had a fantastic time. The band have stayed together and you've recently released Frontline and it feels like Dub Pistols are in a great place. After coming back from America, I would say that's when things really spiralled into. We were doing we're doing great shows, we're doing a lot of shows, 
but that we were, we were drinking and you know partying way too much and it became a bit bad um rob the bank signed us to his label and that kind of helped us get back on the path and then i guess since then it's been a steady climb back and we've almost become i guess you know we're not going to be the next big thing that's not what um we aspire to be or, or whatever but we built up a good cult following do you know i mean a real good loyal fan base and and i guess our festival performances and everything now have helped us go back up you know to and, and i think social media and everything's changed changed the way that you can reach out to your audiences etc so you know putting out the the album on our own record label getting it wet doing it really well in the charts and just getting you know just really taking back control of your own life but being in a good place to do it everyone says it you're one of the good guys so <laughs> despite everything it's brilliant to see you in a good place and being successful thank you chris i mean like i said it really is where you judge success you know are we a multi-million pound multi-grammy award-winning band no we're not we have a fantastic career and we're in a happy place and we're doing what we still love so from that point of view i would say i'm successful barry it's time for the first of your five picks from 45 in this record box here all the questions are on 45 sleeves i'll dip into the box and you say when i'll pull out each question okay so going in now go ahead Have you ever faced danger in a DJ booth? Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> Where do we start? <laughs> Where do we start? I mean, when are you, yeah, I think every time you step into one, you're in danger. I remember, I remember being in, um, I can't remember the club in Brixton once, and I think I put my first tune on and a bottle hit me in the head. You know, and that was a straight away, that just completely freaked me out. The maddest thing about that was... Um, the, the, the guy come up to me afterwards and went, it was me who threw that bottle. I just, you know, I just wanted to tell you how great you were. Like, you didn't have to do, do it with a bottle. There, there, was, there was times when I was in Thailand where, again, you know, there's, you know, it's, it's, Thailand's my favourite country in the world, but as you know, there, there is a dark undercurrent in there. And if you could do the wrong things with the wrong people or for the wrong people, then you can be in trouble very quickly, do you know? And there's been times when I've had to be smuggled out of places in Thailand. I've been pistol whipped in Thailand, you know? So, yeah, and I've definitely been in danger in a DJ mode. Dave Haslam <laughs> talks about a time they had a gun pulled on him at the Hacienda. Yeah, right, right, yeah. And I, I, oof, I mean, Mexico, you know, getting kidnapped in, in taxis. Do you know what I mean? And what? Take... <laughs> you serious? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, it's happened to many DJs when you've been in those kind of places. You know, it's, it, it, I think, yeah. How are you still here? <laughs> well, so I don't know how. I don't know how you've managed to get yourself out of all these situations. Somehow some things just seem to work out. Well, there was another time when I was in Thailand as well, and health and safety isn't an issue either there. And I was jumping up and down on the stage and I fell through it. And then I was walking around for two days with a nail flat, flat side in that had gone into my leg, and then then again with the humidity and that of the tree, you know the climate, the infection was just that bad. I went I saw this thing, went to pull it out, and I just couldn't. And then and then each the infection had spread so badly that each day they were having to cut bits more and more of of, of my leg and my skin away. 
And then I went to, from there somehow, I went to China and they gave me the wrong medication and just my whole body was just rashed. And I was like, I just want to go home. <laughs> I, did, I paused there because that just, I just want to go home. You must have thought that a few times, bearing in mind all the stories you've told. Mm. Yeah. I mean, now, now all I want to do is go home. Back in the day, I never used to want to go home. You know, I didn't. I just wanted to stay up and pie. Back into the box. Yeah. Question two, Barry. Say when. Let's have it. What's the most famous you've ever felt? I don't think I've ever felt famous, if I'm really honest with you, Chris. No, no, because, I, I mean, I've met famous people. I've seen what surrounds famous people so I would never say you know I, I was working on set with Paul McCartney once recording at Pinewood Studios and Princess Diana and Wills and Harry walked in and you realize that that's you know that that's fame for you do you know what I mean or or you know you see the crowds that some people just get mobbed by I don't think I've ever felt in that kind of league. Do you know what I mean? So I wouldn't say I'd never. I'm, I'm, I wouldn't. I don't think my ego would allow me to ever feel that famous. How do you feel when you walk out on stage in front of thousands of people? Brilliant. You know. Uh, now, 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 I really, really, really enjoy it. I think there was a year. There was there was a moment last year at Glastonbury when we walked out and just the roar of the crowd was just like. And it was just like, wow, you know, and it's just, how can you not enjoy that? You know, it was just really, and just, just, just as far as you can see, see people as far as you can, you, you know, if you can't enjoy that buzz, you might get a bit nervous before you go on, but that, you know, that it would be something wrong if you didn't. Your next question for the box, Barry. Hit me one more time. <laughs> What's the best dance floor you've ever been on? Oh, I would have to say, I mean, I've been on so many crazy dance floors every, everywhere from, you know, back to basics has been crazy. Some of the dance floors that I've been on, you know, amnesia back in the day was absolutely crazy. I guess the whole vibe in a club back then was different. So, and, and, and just being loved up. And, and I mean, some of the nights I had at our own events, like Naked Lunch and things like that, when we'd, we'd literally go, me and the other guys who would promote it, go and stand in each corner of the room and start whooping and making a noise and then just watch that reverberating around the club and then just watching the place just go off. So many, I'm, I used to throw parties during Notting Hill Carnival at a place called The Station and Jocelyn Brown was playing for us. She was playing with the Cuban brothers for us and she got into the middle of the of the dance floor and she just did somebody else's guy and the way that she belted it out and the way that that just place just erupted, that was something that was very, very special. Another question from the box. Say, Take wait. it. Can you share a DJ trick? <laughs> I can I can tell you one that's not very nice. <laughs> well, you know when you have your drinks on the front of the DJ booth and everyone keeps nicking them. <laughs> <laughs> you know where I'm going, right? Go on. Well, you just you just pee in a pint glass and put that there on the top of the glass and leave it there. <laughs> Only Barry Ashworth. <laughs> <laughs> Answer that question and turn it into a booze one rather than an actual skill. 
Well, because I don't think you know, I'm not a turntablist. I'm not a I'm not a scratch DJ. Do you know what I mean? I mix two records together, and I'm more of a vibes master than a than a than a the master technician. Do you know what I mean? So you know, tricks really are for for your JFB and your DJ DMC World Champions, etc. And your Cole Coxes. Do you know what I mean? But for me, I'm 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 a selector, and I'm a uh, you know, and I mix two tunes together. Pissing a pint is is basically your answer to that question. Yes, pissing a pint. Yeah. Put it on the front of the uh, right. DJ booth. They will never have a drink stolen ever again. Tremendous. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> your last question. <laughs> Go on. Take it. Right, this is songs with questions for titles, okay? So you've got to answer the, the song title question. How deep is your love? And there are three of these first. How deep is your love? You can answer it any way you want. My love is deep. My love is strong. It's, you know, for me, it's all about love, love, love. You know, my, my, one of my dearest friends in the world was Terry Hall. And, you know, he was always stood up for, for the little guy. And his last words to the world, you know, to Limbo we're love, love, love. And it's a mantra that I stand by. Do you know what I mean? So, and obviously being married and that, that changing my life, then love is a massive part. I think I've I'm, I'm really been lucky in life in that something happened to me when I was four years old. I fell on the live rail and got burnt to bits and spent two years inside. And as you can see, like, you know, every part of my body's burnt to bits. But what happened to me there was that I was given... Um, everywhere I went, before I'd go into a classroom, a teacher would talk to the whole class and say, look, you know, Barry's a Burns victim, like, la, la, la. And all I've ever been shown in my life because of what happened to me when I was younger was love. Do you know what I mean? So it's a massive part of, you know. I did not know that. Do you share that story? No. I mean, you know, every you look at me, you know, yeah, I mean, I died clinically three times. I spent two years in the Royal Marsden. Barry. <laughs> Jesus. I'll show you a scar on my back when this is done that it looks like I've been branded and looks like I'm, yeah, obviously you'll see it's like, yeah. So when maybe when that's happened to you at four years old and you've had that start in I life, think, you just want to enjoy every moment. I think the, 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 the part of, I've always had a strong belief in which again, you know, I do my wing walk and I do my, you know, jumping out of planes or I do, I, I honestly, for many years, I'm only becoming aware now of mortality. I think because of what happened to me when I was younger, I was fearless. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because I honestly believe that if God was going to take you or your time was up, then he would decide that and it would have been that time. So for years, I just honestly before, you know, nothing could ever happen to me. Your next song title question may be, I don't know if, look, it's what's going on. So I, I guess you might have even answered that with some of what you've just said. What's not going on, Chris? <laughs> what's going on? You can take it every way, which way you want. What's going on is we're living in a world that is very divisive. What's going on is that I'm crazy busy. You know, I'm recording a new album with Aston from the Freestylers. Freestylers versus Dub Pistols or vice versa. I'm running the festival. I'm running the label. You know, our bookings are God knows till God knows when. Yeah, it's just too much going on. <laughs> <laughs> Better that way around, though, eh? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, like I said, never take anything for granted. And the fact that I've still got a career after this long and 
that much trouble that I've caused is incredible. <laughs> At your last song title question, how soon is now? Right here, right now. I only ever, I mean, I, I guess the nature of what we do and our industry means that we're planning, we're planning so far ahead. Do you know what I mean? In terms of like, you know, I'm already like, you know, thinking about next year's festival or the year after that. But I, but I really genuinely mean it. And it sounds like a cliche. I only ever live in the now, because you never, you know, never know when the now is not not, not going to happen again, or you, you know, something's going to go wrong. So I very much live in the now. Barry, this felt like a, a very very special time with you. Thank you. Been my absolute pleasure, Chris. Thanks for being such an open book, so open and honest and entertaining. <laughs> Well, I hope if you learnt anything, you learnt how not to behave like Barry Ashworth. <laughs> Your life's been ridiculous. There's one last question for you. It's the end of the world and you've got to play the last three records on earth. What would they be? Oh, I love Ordinary Joe. Message to you, Rudy. And Ghost Town. Barry Ashworth, thank you so much. My pleasure, Chris. And that was How to DJ. How to DJ. How to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from. <laughs>